I invite you to please rise for the call to worship. The call to worship is from Psalm 67, verses 5 and 6. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, how mighty, how majestic is your name to be high and lifted up, to be feared, to be honored, to be praised, to be glorified. Oh, Father, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Father, we thank you for your Son and his atoning death on the cross. We pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would grow us up in his likeness to give you all praise, all glory, and all honor. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I invite you to sing with me number 216. Praise the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Okay. 
You may be seated. For a time of confession and pardon, I'll be reading from Romans 6. I'll be reading Romans 6, verses 20 through 21, leading us in a prayer of confession, and then continuing on with verses 22 and 23. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, under your just holy condemnation, deserving of your wrath, deserving of torment, punishment, that you made a way. Oh, Father, how amazing is your grace, your mercy, your love. Father, again, we want to humble ourselves before you and acknowledge that we were slaves to sin. And though we have been set free from sin in, through, by your Son, Jesus Christ, and his atoning work, oh, Father, we continue to fall far short of your glory. We continue in weakness and rebellion. So, Father, we want to again take this time to humble ourselves before you and confess those sins of thought, word, and action. We confess these to you now in our hearts and in our minds. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Know this, that if you 
have been given the gifts of repentance and faith, if you trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been forgiven of all your sin. His shed blood has washed you clean. You have been adopted and you are loved by your heavenly Father. In Christ's glorious name, amen. As we continue looking at the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, we're looking at Lord's Day 24, question answer 64. I'll ask the question. I invite you to respond with me with the answer. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. You see, the response of 64 is in light of what just preceded it, making clear that we are saved not by works, but by faith alone, God's grace alone, and Christ alone. And you see where the Heidelberg Catechism is doing what the Apostle Paul does when he says some will hear that and distort it to let us sin all the more so that grace will abound, or that it would produce indifference, wickedness, and an open rebellion with a presumption before God. But you see where question answer 64 makes clear, no, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. We do good works because we've been made alive by God's grace alone. Before that, we could do no good. So just as important clarification concerning works and faith and salvation. Well, let us go to Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. You are all sovereign. You're the all glorious creator. Everything that has been made, you have made it, speaking it into existence through your Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Father, we thank you. Every breath that we take, every working of every cell, every intricate process, not only have you made, but you sustain for your purpose and your plan. Oh, Father, you are marvelous. The immense beauty and diversity of your creation, lifting up your attributes. You are all-powerful, all-knowing. So that no one is with excuse. Just by the glorious reality of your creation, everyone knows that there is a God and that there will be a judgment. Well, Father, we thank you that you have displayed yourself so marvelously within your created order. And Father, we thank you 
that because of our fall and sin and corruption from the fall of Adam. Oh, Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself through your word. You reveal yourself ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ. So that we who were blinded by sin could see, who were deaf through our rebellion could hear. We who had stones of heart, hearts of stone, could have hearts of flesh beating. Knowing of your love as you transform our minds. Oh, Father, without you, we would remain under your holy, just condemnation and wrath. But through the atoning work of your son on the cross, we have a way of forgiveness and salvation to be made right with you. Oh, Father, we pray that you would keep the glorious truth of the gospel and your gracious and merciful love ever before us in our hearts and in our minds that we would speak of it often. Oh, Father, we pray that you would continue to grow us and guide us in a fear of you, that you are high and lifted up. Father, we thank you. We thank you that though we are weak, you have promised that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to continue to lead us and guide us, to grow us up in the likeness of your Son, Well, Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to live more and more according to the Holy Spirit and less and less according to our old fallen flesh. Well, Father, we pray that you grow us in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, Father, we pray you'd grow us in the fruit of the Spirit that you'd help us to pick up our cross and to follow, to die to the things of this world, knowing that our life is in Christ, for Christ. How we long for his return. So Father, we pray that you would help us not to be fixed on things below, but on things above. Remind us, O Lord, that our citizenship is in heaven. Help us, O Lord, as refugees on this fallen heaven and earth to seek you in all things, to lift high your name. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would help the church to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. For we are in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation. So much lies and deceptions from the devil from the world, from the fallen culture around us. Well, Father, we pray that you would help us to know that our only joy, our only peace is within your Son, by your gracious hand, according to your living and active word. Well, Father, we pray that you'd grow our hunger and desire for your word, to meditate on it, to study it, to memorize it, to commit it to our hearts and minds, to speak it, to sing it over one another. Well, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, 
that you'd strengthen our families. Father, we pray for all the marriages represented here. Oh, Lord, that they would represent Christ in the church. Father, we pray for the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Oh, Lord, that they would know you, that they would love you, that they would seek you in all things, that they would give you glory with their lives. Father, we pray that you'd give them eyes to see, hearts to believe, minds to understand. Oh, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world who face such tremendous persecution and opposition. Father, we pray that you would be their peace and strength. We pray for those caught in the midst of war zones. Oh, Father, that you would continue to lead them and guide them, that they would shine the light of your Son in the midst of the darkness. Father, we do continue to pray for Reverend Corsay, the missionary who we helped to support and Romania. Father, we pray for him and his wife and their children, that you continue to be their strength and comfort. We pray that you continue to strengthen that congregation. Oh, Father, we thank you for their faithfulness to lift high the gospel, not only in in Romania, but throughout the surrounding region. Father, we pray that you continue to send forth your gospel. Oh, Father, we pray for continued healing and strength for those in a time of need. Father, we do pray for Willie, for strength, for comfort, for peace, that you'd be with him and Laura. Father, we pray for Arlette. Father, we pray for her time in in Texas, O Lord, that you would lead and guide, that she would know you and love you and serve you. Father, we pray for her. Father, we pray for those who face ongoing treatments in the midst of pain. And Oh, Father, we pray that their eyes would be fixed on you, that you would be their peace and strength and comfort. Father, we pray for those who are in a time of instability, of great struggle. Oh, Father, that you would be their peace and their strength. Father, we thank you, and it is because of your unfailing love that we say the prayer that our Savior taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We continue to look at John chapter 3, so I invite you to rise and read with me our passage of Scripture. We've been focusing in on John 3, 16. Last week we looked at the two verses preceding it. This week we look at the two verses directly following it. So I invite you to read with me John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing, exposing. Oh, Father, your word is breathed out by you to bring life, conviction of sin. Oh, Father, we pray that you'd grow us in the glorious truth of your word, of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Your word is all authoritative, all sufficient, inerrant and infallible. We are absolutely dependent on you the work of your Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit to know the truth of your word. Oh, Father, we pray that you would grow us in the truth, for it is only in the truth of your word that we have any life. In Christ's glorious name, amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite any children who would like to, if you want to come up for the message at this time. I have a question for you. Have you ever been accused of doing something wrong and you actually didn't do it? Has that ever happened? Or something something got broke or something happened or this and or something and they looked at you or called your name out, you heard your name yelled out. But you were innocent. That's happened to you? A few times? Yeah? No? What's interesting is in our passage of Scripture, it talks about being under condemnation. Do you know what that word means? Condemnation? Well, let's see, to break it down, to be condemned. That means to be declared guilty. So if you're under condemnation, that is, that is quite a diff- most difficult state to be in. And in this word condemnation, which said again and again in our text, it isn't speaking of being guilty in the eyes of a teacher or guilty in the eyes of our parents. It's speaking of being declared guilty in the eyes of God. So that's how weighty this condemnation is. And there's only one way to have the guilt removed. Because unlike the scenario where I said, have you ever been accused of doing something and you actually didn't do it? Well, in our text, it speaks of everyone is guilty of sinning against God. Everyone is. Everyone. We're born that way. So we're all under condemnation. And there's only one way to go from being guilty to being declared innocent by God. Only one way. What is that way? Does anybody know? 
What is the way? How do you go from being under condemnation, guilt, to being declared innocent? Well, how about this? If you do more good than you did bad, you think that'll work? Maybe. Maybe. Okay, do more good than bad. But the problem is, we can't. We can never do more good than bad because even the good we do isn't perfect. So that isn't going to work. So how can we go from being declared guilty to innocent by God? It's amazing. So this is this reality. Remember how we often speak about faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone? So the only way a person can go from condemnation, guilt, to declared innocent is by faith. Isn't that something? By believing, truly believing. And what is it you have to truly believe? That yes, I am guilty and I deserve the punishment of God. But Jesus Christ on the cross paid the penalty of my sin, satisfied the wrath of God. He was condemned so that I could be made innocent. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel. That's the good news. So as we're going through this passage, you're going to hear that word condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. I want you to think guilty, guilty. It's like the judge saying guilty, guilty, guilty. But God has made a way that we could be declared innocent because of Christ. So let's pray. Oh, Father, how amazing is your love that though we are all under your condemnation, we are all guilty, that you have made a way through the death of your son Jesus Christ on the cross that if we would trust, if we would believe in our guilt and that we are made innocent through your son, that we would be saved. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust, to believe, and to have faith. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Amen. You guys get back to your seats. So we are looking at John chapter 3. We have the oft-famous verse. I don't know if they still do this, but when I was a kid, you always saw this verse at every football game or basketball game. I mean, you literally would. As a kid, I wasn't that interested in sports, but I was always, I was so used to seeing it, I would just scan the stands to see who had to sign this. I mean, it was just... This verse is this famous, this common, this was lifted up. It was just a part of the cultural conversation. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So that's that key, vitally important, wonderful verse. With that verse, you can share the gospel. 
Again, we're looking at, last week we looked at the two verses before it, this week we're looking at the two verses after to help us truly understand John 3.16. But again, I want to fix on John 3.16 where it says, for God so loved, it's the this love of God. And I, I think a very important verse to help us understand John 3.16 is Romans 5, Romans 5. So I want us to look at Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. I think this is what it's speaking about, that God so loved that he gave. Love that he gave. It's Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Remember the context of Romans 5, just preceding this, is hardly will anyone die for anyone else. It almost never happens. It's, it's rare. That's why it so stands out. Maybe, possibly, someone would give their life for a good person. But that's what's so amazing about Romans 6, 8, is you have... The Father, so loving his elect, that while they are bad people, Christ dies for them. While they are hating him, Christ dies for them. That's literally the state that we're in when we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We hate God. And we want to do everything we can to remove God from our lives. And that's the state we're in when the Father sends the Son to die for us. And that's the state we're in when the Holy Spirit comes to bring us out of that state. That's the new birth. So that's Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that why we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And here we have some logic. This is, very, this is where logic helps. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, so again, if while we were bad people, enemies of God, hating God, hating everything that has to do with God, doing everything we can to fight against God and all of God's people, if while we are in that state, he sends his only begotten son, his holy glorious son whom he is in a perfect love unity with, if he sends his son to die for you while you are a God-hating rebel, if once the son has died for you and you've been reconciled, that's the rest of verse 10. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If, 
This is the basis of our assurance. This is the basis of all assurance is that. If Christ dies for us while we are God-haters, then once we have been made alive to now love God, well, then what could separate you from God? Of course, you are going to be in a right relationship with God forever. That's the logic. That's what's being described for us here in Romans 8. Again, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God. Wow, you see that? See the fruit of that? That's the basis of our rejoicing. The basis of all our joy, all our peace, all our hope, all our comfort is not only have we died in Christ when he died, but we have been raised to new life with Christ's resurrection. But the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we've been given the gifts of God's grace and mercy. We rejoice. That is the source of our joy. That is the source of our peace. That's what's made clear in Romans 8, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the reconciliation, a right relationship. You are now restored to a right relationship with God, meaning God's love is on you, Christ is interceding on your behalf. The Father hears your prayer and the prayers of Christ because you have been reconciled. You've been made right. You are no longer under condemnation. You are no longer guilty. Because as long as you're guilty, you cannot be in a right relationship with God. He is holy, holy, holy. And you have to be as innocent as God is innocent. You have to be as holy as God is holy. You have to be as righteous as God is righteous. And that only takes place through the work of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and us being clothed in his righteousness, covered in his blood. That's the love for God so loved. And again, Romans 5, 8 makes clear what is the nature of his love? That while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. John 15 is another important verse. It helps further explain what was just stated in Romans 5. John 15, verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So here you have this reality that Christ lays down his life while we are his enemies. The Holy Spirit makes us alive and we become his friends. That's the nature of that song, what a friend we have in Jesus. It's, it's based on this verse. We become friends of Jesus. 
through his atoning work on the cross. Again, how his love is displayed in him laying down his life. Another important verse that speaks of this love with such a sacrifice is Titus 3. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 4. Verses 1 through 3 are what terrible, wretched, wicked scoundrels we all are. So that's verses 1 through 3. So there's your quick summarizing. So just, we are under condemnation, wrath, we are wicked, we deserve God's judgment. That's verses 1 through 3. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, so that's the key word, that's the opposite of condemned. If condemnation means you are declared guilty, justified means you are declared innocent. So to go from a state of condemnation to a state of justification. That's the transfer from wrath to love, from darkness to light that takes place in our salvation. Again, Titus 3, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that's where your hope of eternal life is. You've been justified. You've been reconciled. And you are loved by your heavenly father. How do you know that? He sent his only son to die while you hated him and were his enemy. That's how you know the nature of God's love. So that gets us to verse 17 and 18. The whole context of John 3.16 is within the context of condemnation. Condemnation. Uh, the word is three times in verses 17 and 18. Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. That's your biblical way to really emphasize something. You repeat it, especially three times. So here's the reality of condemnation. And this is where scriptural depicts the reality of the human condition that is different than the legal system of the United States of America. The legal system of the United States of America has this principle which is very helpful for human justice and legislation. And what is that principle? That everyone is innocent until proven guilty. So that's a fundamental foundational reality of the human justice system, especially what we see within the United States of America. Everyone is innocent unless proven guilty. And why is that so important? That's so important to seek to prevent lynching, mob violence, to prevent uh, retribution, vengeance without due process. So that's why there's that principle, innocent until proven guilty. And it's very helpful within a legal 
system amongst humans. Scripturally, that has nothing to do with the reality of the human condition. Scripturally, everyone from conception is guilty unless made innocent. That's the human condition. That's the biblical reality of every human being. Every human being is conceived and born guilty, guilty, guilty. And they will remain guilty their entire life. And they will remain under guilt and condemnation for eternity unless they're made innocent. That's the reality of the human condition. That's the reality of sin. And that's what you have to grasp to understand verses 17 and 18. And that's why so few people understand John 3.16 is because the prevailing misunderstanding of humans is that people are basically innocent or good unless they turn really bad. And there are a few that are really bad, but most people are so-so. It's not a biblical understanding of humanity. A biblical understanding of humanity is that we are all guilty, guilty, guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous, no, not one. So everyone's under condemnation and wrath unless we are made innocent. And you have to be made innocent. And how is everyone who is made innocent made innocent? Well, the father has to have foreknown you means he has to have placed his love on you from eternity past. He has to elect you. And the son has to die for you on the cross, paying the penalty of your sin. He has to be made guilty. He has to be condemned, forsaken, bearing the wrath of God so that you can be justified, declared innocent. And the Holy Spirit has to come and make you alive and bring you from that I hate God state to, oh, I need God. God has so loved me, he sent me his son. I love you, God. See, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the new birth. That's how everyone who was under condemnation and wrath comes to the state of innocence, being made righteous. That's what verses 17 and 18 is all about. You have to first understand that everyone is conceived and born guilty, 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 under condemnation and wrath. Everyone. Everyone of every tribe, nation, language, people. Everyone. Every human being. No matter how nice or how mean they are. Whether they have a pleasant personality or an unpleasant personality. Whether they work hard or they're lazy. This is guilty, guilty, guilty. There's only one way that makes someone innocent, and it can't be through their works. Because our works fall short of the glory of God. And if someone hasn't been made alive through the good news of Jesus Christ and the work of Christ in the gospel, they can't do any good. And even once someone is saved, the good we do is not perfect. So, so 
there's only one way of innocence. And that's what verses 17 and 18 is all about. There's one way of innocence. So verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So again, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is very important. This is the reason for the incarnation. This is the reason for Christ's first coming. And it wasn't, it's made clear, it wasn't to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was condemned already. That's what it's going to make clear. It was already under a state of condemnation. The father did not need to send the son to condemn the world. That was already the state it was in. No, the son was sent in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, what is the world? We see world used in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And we see world here in verse 17, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I'm saying the in the context of John chapters 1, 2, and 3, when it speaks of the world, it's speaking of the elect of every tribe, nation, language, and people. Where there is no Jew, Gentile, free slave, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, male and female, that ruled, it's talking about God so loved his elect of every tribe, nation, language, and people. That's what I am saying is the definition of world in John 3.16 and John 3.17. And we're going to look at some verses that, that express that reality. So again, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, I want us to look at Romans 8, because Romans 8 is Paul's great chapter of condemnation. So this would be, you could see it as the Apostle Paul's commentary on John 3, 16 through 18, on this concept of condemnation. And it is Paul's focus in Romans 8. It's what he's been building up to through Romans 1 and 7, as he's been building up to Romans 8 in this declaration concerning condemnation. So Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a very important sentence. I'll read that again. There is therefore now. So the now, this is after Christ has come in his incarnation, after he's lived a perfect holy life, obeying all of God's law, after he died a substitutionary death on the cross, paying for sin, satisfying the wrath of God, on behalf of those who would be called and drawn through the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, now that Christ has come, that he has died, and that he has ascended, and he's interceding. That's what the now means. Now. There is therefore now, after Christ's ascension, 
No condemnation. No more guilt. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you want to get out from under condemnation and guilt, you need to be in Jesus Christ. You need to be in Christ Jesus. And how do you get in Christ Jesus? Through his spirit dwelling within you and you abiding in him through those gifts of repentance and faith given you by the Holy Spirit. That's how you abide in Christ. You live in him, growing in those fruits of those gifts of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. You're growing up in those truths. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's how the condemnation is removed. Because we were under the law of sin and death. The wages of sin is death. We broke God's law. So we are under his condemnation, his wrath, and the wages of our sin is death. So we have to be set free from that. And how are we set free from that? Verse 2, the law of the spirit of life. Because Christ has paid the penalty of our sin, because he satisfied the wrath of God, the Holy Spirit can give us that freedom, that righteousness of Christ. Reckon to us. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's the key reality that takes place on the cross that enables us to no longer be under condemnation. Jesus has to be forsaken because we were forsaken. Jesus has to bear the curse because we were under the curse of God. Jesus has to be the sin bearer. He has to pay the penalty of sin for us to be set free from that sin. And here we see that reality of condemnation. Ultimately, Jesus had to be condemned as though guilty so that our condemnation can be removed. That's the reality of Romans 8. Verse 3, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God, taking on flesh, living a perfect holy life in that flesh, is able to bear the full condemnation of sin in the flesh on behalf of those who will be given his spirit. That's what Romans 8 is describing for us, that transfer that double imputation. Our sin is imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So now we live out of gratitude to God and we are to walk according to the spirit. We've been set free from the flesh, set free from the law of sin and death and condemnation. So live in freedom. Live for Christ. Live for God. 
That's what Paul is saying. Live in that freedom and new life that we have in Christ. If you go in Romans 8 to verse 31 and 32, you see where he repeats what he said in Romans 5. Romans 8, 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So if God has declared you innocent, justified, who can declare you guilty when it comes to your relationship with God? No one. That's that's what's being stated here. So again, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So who is this world that could be saved through him? Well, is it only people like you? See, that's been a problem throughout the history of the visible church is sadly because of sin and corruption, there have been those within the visible church that have tried to limit the scope of those who are savable. It happens again and again. This is just a constant refrain. And the chief way to do that is you deem savable those who are most like you. It kind of gives you a boost, an advantage, something to boast in, and this and that, and it pushes out and excludes others. Sadly, this has been a common sin throughout the history of the visible church. But we see where that should not be the case just based on John Chapter 3, 16 through 17. Well, let's go to Matthew 9. Here's where Jesus is fighting against this kind of misunderstanding and declaring that, no, he was sent to save the world. Matthew 9, verse 9. Here's again one of these showdowns between Jesus and the Pharisees and the lawyers. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. That's the one who wrote the very gospel that we're reading from here. Sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners, ay, 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 this is getting scandalous, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They are hanging out. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you know that they cannot be saved? That's, that's the implication. That's what they're saying. The only ones who can be saved are the righteous of Israel. Pretty much the Pharisees, the scribes, and very few others. It's a very small number who were actually going to make it, according to the Pharisees. So here is, again is this reality. 
Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Wow. Talk about a complete flip. The Pharisees and scribes were accusing Jesus of wickedness because don't you know, only the righteous can be saved. And then Jesus comes and he says this statement I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus literally tells them, I can only save sinners. I can't save the righteous. Isn't that amazing? So again, that's the reality of John 3, 16, with these words, condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. Jesus can only save those who are under condemnation. Now, the Pharisees, sadly, were also under condemnation. So what he's saying is, you have to be made aware that you are under the condemnation wrath of God to be saved. You have to be humbled. Your pride has to be brought low. And that's only done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, Jesus emphasized this in Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So if you are not lost, Jesus can't find you. If you are not sick, Jesus can't heal you. That's the reality. So you have to be made aware, and this is the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the law of God. You have to be made aware of your condition of condemnation to be saved. That's the conviction of sin that leads to saving belief and faith. That's what John 3, 16, 17, 18 is describing for us. Uh, this was prophesied in Isaiah. The world that the Messiah, the Savior, will come to save is not merely the elect of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. You find this in Isaiah 49. This is a beautiful statement of Isaiah 49, where the prophet Isaiah says, It isn't enough that you, the Holy One, the Righteous One of Israel, the Son of God. It, it's not enough that you just save the remnant of the Jews. No, you're going to save the world, the remnant, the elect of every tribe, nation, language, and people. This is Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. There it is. That's to the world. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Israel, 
the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. We see Christ lifted up as the Holy One of Israel, the Chosen One, the Faithful One, and he will make a way of salvation for the world. Not only Jew, but also Gentile, to the ends of the earth. And this is what Jesus makes clear in Matthew 28, his great commission. Go to every tribe, nation, language, and people. Go to the world. Go to the ends of the earth. Make disciples through the glorious proclamation of the gospel. Verse 18 of John 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There it is. That's how you get out from under that condemnation. Believing. You have to be in Christ. How do you get in Christ? You believe in him. You believe in the gospel. You trust and believe. You believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. See, because you were conceived and born under condemnation. Because he is not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's one name, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. There's one name who's King of kings and Lord of lords. There is one Savior, one Redeemer. There's only one Son of God. Eternally begotten Son of God. Everyone else has to be adopted. There's only one Son of God, and it is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. <coughs> and that becomes a dominant theme throughout Scripture. Why are we condemned already? 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the best passages that makes that clear. Because we are all in Adam. When he sinned, he was our representative. So we need to be in Christ like we were in Adam. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as to the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's what it is to, to believe in Christ and to be in him and no longer merely of the man of dust. <coughs> That's why I, I, I find it so helpful at a graveside to actually have some dirt you can narrowly find dirt anymore at a graveside service. It ain't like it used to be. It ain't where you show up and the guy's still digging the hole. 
That's a, I grew up with the hills in Kentucky. Now in a lot of these, it's all astroturf and it's sanitized. And I mean, it is, you can't find dirt. Like I said, the last time, last three times I've had to do a graveside services, I have a Ziploc bag in my pocket with dirt in it. I had to bring my own dirt. I kid you not, that's how sanitized this stuff is. The person's dead. Their corpse is rotting. And you gotta be real with what death is. I bring my own dirt. So if you're wondering why and I, I'm in the grave sign, I've got to put my hand in my pockets because I'm going to pull that dirt and bam, throw it on the coffin. I'm going to bam, throw dirt. It's going to hit the astroturf. The cemetery people ground. like, oh, the guy gasped the last time when I did it because they had spent the whole day making it pristine and clean. And here's this crazy preacher throwing dirt all over everything. But it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And that body of corruption, it is planted and it rots and it falls apart. But that's not our hope. If your hope is trying to keep that corpse as good as possible, what a terrible hope. I've been to Moscow. I've seen linen. Under glass, you can see them. When I was in Moscow, Russia, you could go and you went down in a mausoleum where they, it was a place of worship and there was linen. And he was there and he was under glass. And at this point, he had been dead for over 40 years and he wasn't looking too good. And, and they'd put new hair on him and, and they were trying to keep him and people would walk by and touch, weep and pray. I mean, this is the closest thing to a religion that you could see in Moscow. Oh, it was something. And you went and you got to pause and we looked in and the glass, you know, they kept the glass clean and they kept the suit clean and this and that. But, but his nose, you could tell it had fallen off at some point. So they used putty and they tried to make a new nose. <laughs> yeah, this is, to them, this is eternal life. This is how they eternally were lifting up linen. And I'm like, have mercy. I wish I had some dirt in my pocket, but I didn't have any dirt in my pocket. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Put the man in the ground. But that's how, that's the best they could hope for eternal life. But that isn't our hope. Remember, ashes, ashes, dust to dust. This body has to be planted, it rots, it decays, it falls apart. What is our hope? Our new resurrection body. That's what our hope is. Our, our hope is that just as we are like the man of dust, because the condemnation is removed, we are like the man from heaven. We are in Christ, and his spirit dwells within us, so that though this body falls apart, dies, rots and decays, we have a new glorious body. That's where our hope is. So that's the reality of going from the man of dust to the man from heaven. That's what is being spoken of in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You, you just remain as a man of dust, like Adam, the man of dust. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You want to stop being just a man of dust? Believe. Repent of your sin. Cry out for a Savior. Believe that on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty of your sin. He satisfied the wrath of God so that all condemnation is removed from you. So his spirit now dwells in you and you in him so that you can die. But you have eternal life. This body can rot and decay, but you're going to have a new glorious body. That's the glorious hope of John 3, 16, 17, and 18. It's all about the condemnation has been removed. Now, in Christ, for those who are in Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. How wonderful you are. How good. How gracious. Oh, Father, that you would so love us that while we were your enemy, you would send your son to die for us. (coughs) Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to understand what it means that we are no longer mere dust, but that you've placed the spirit of your son within us and that we have been justified by his blood. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to live in the newness of life, in the freedom that is ours through your Son. Father, we pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help us to repent, believe, to trust, and to grow in faith. In Christ's glorious name. Amen. Well, I invite you to rise and sing with me, number 431. And can it be that I should gain?
Let's receive the benediction. In the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the love of God, and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. I invite you to close with me with the Gloria Patria.
go in peace.